MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 162 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. The busiest week in news in the universe. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. It's the busiest so far. It's the slowest <laughs> for the rest of your life. We, we have way, <laughs> way too much to cover today, but we're going to do our best. So buckle in because we have updates on. Let me take a bib. Big, big breath. Pete Navarro, Steve Bannon, the election interference, hush money, Manhattan DA case, the New York Attorney General civil fraud disgorgement, the E. Jean Carroll order, the Kraken elite strike force sanctions, the Alexander Smirnoff arrest and second arrest, the Jim Biden testimony, the Hunter Biden motion to compel discovery and Alex Jones update, a referral by the Wisconsin Ethics Commission, and of course, the latest in Fulton County is a Monday, which is when we record this episode. Oh, oh, is that it? Is that all? <laughs> yeah, I had to, I didn't get, I had to take a breath. I didn't make it all the way through. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, I used to do uh, these shows, you know, you know, the kind of shows where you have somebody come up and just play and sing like sing along songs. And one of my uh, tricks was that I could do an entire verse of it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine by REM without taking a breath. And I always ended up winning. And that, that was just, that was just a way to get free drinks, Pete. Um, so I hope somebody buys you a cocktail for being able to get through that But I didn't make list. it. I didn't make it. I failed. So they, they owe me nothing. I get nothing. I get a glass of water. Stupid elite strike force cracking sanctions. I would have done it too if it weren't for you. If it weren't for those Ugh. meddling strike force crackens. Oh, anyway, uh, I think we're going to have to do a lightning round on a lot of these, and we'll do a deeper dive in some of the bigger stories, including the Smirnoff arrest and rearrest, uh, David Weiss and what's going on in the Hunter Biden investigation, mm -hmm. and of course, the Fulton County stories. But before we get to any of it, we need to thank some new patrons. Uh, as a patron, you get these episodes early, you get them ad-free, you get invites to our Zoom Q&A happy hour calls, pre-sale tickets to live events. And the peace of mind, knowing that you're supporting independent media during this crucial moment in history. And patrons at the $2 level, you get a whole extra episode each week, twice as many episodes. So thanks to our new patrons, including Fingers, Lisa Rue, Maris Lawson. And I think you have a note about Maris, don't you? Yeah, no, quick shout out. Thanks, Maris, to uh, the, the note that you and your mother sent. I really appreciate the, uh, the thoughts and I appreciate it and uh, no harm whatsoever. So thanks very much. Yes, and uh, Roberta Renshaw, Denise Sibbert, Jana, nineteen sixty-five, very good year, especially for Mustang convertibles. Dave Canaday, David Martin, Justinus Menzel, Riz Sweet, and Brent. If I mispronounced any of that, I'm truly sorry. All right, 
I think we should lightning round the A block. So everybody, as you listen to this, feel free to pause in between these quick stories to soak in the justice goodness, because they're all very heavy stories, but we have to fly through them. Let it wash over you like a wave of tranquility or a wave of mutilation if you're a Pixies fan, however you want to mm. do it. But this is a lot of news in a little bit of time. You ready? Yeah. And so remember, all of this is brought to you courtesy of the vast amount of crime that was going on during the uh, Trump administration. And were it not for that, we would have plenty of time to talk about small things in great depth. But thanks to that massive criminality, here we are. So let's start with Steve Bannon. The most recent news that I can find is from ABC a few weeks ago. Now, they reported that the DA filed a response to Bannon's motion to dismiss, saying it bears little resemblance to reality. Quote, People's presentation in the instant matter include ample evidence that was more than sufficient to support the grand jury's decision to vote the charges laid out in the indictment, prosecutors said in their opposition to Bannon's motion to dismiss. Now, remember, Bannon has been charged. He has pled not to criminal counts. He has pled not guilty to charges of money laundering, conspiracy, and scheming to defraud investors. He faces, not this is separate from the D.C. You know, contempt of Congress. He faces for those charges five to 15 years in prison. And trial right now is currently set to begin on May 27th. Yeah, that's the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, charged him with the We Build the Wall scheme. And from NBC, the Supreme Court last Tuesday rejected appeals brought by Trump-allied lawyers who faced legal sanctions for baselessly alleging in court that the 2020 election in Michigan was fraudulently won by President Joe Biden. By rejecting the appeals, the Supreme Court left in place a June 2023 ruling by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that upheld the sanctions. Now, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood were among the nine lawyers who initially faced sanctions for filing the lawsuit. Powell called the group the Kraken. Uh, the, the appeals court upheld sanctions against seven of them, including Powell and Lynn Wood, our good friend Lynn Wood. Yeah, and this from the Daily Beast, James Biden testified on Wednesday that his older brother, President Joe Biden, had no role in any of his business ventures. Yet another blow to Republican lawmakers leading a <laughs> flagging, uh, yeah, flagging hell. I mean, I think it's dead and, and rolled belly up, but a, a, an impeachment inquiry centered around as yet unproven allegations to the contrary. The younger Biden brother's assertion was part of a lengthy opening statement he gave ahead of fielding questions from the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee in a closed door deposition. Quote, I've had a 50 year career in a variety of business ventures. Joe Biden has never had any involvement or any direct or indirect financial interest in those activities. None. I never asked my brother to take any official action on behalf of me, my business associates or anyone else. In every business venture in which I have been involved, I have relied on my own talent, judgment, skill, and personal relationships, and never my status as Joe Biden's brother. Those who have said or thought otherwise were either mistaken, ill-informed, or flat-out lying. And with James Comer and his uh, brothers and sisters, you can't rule out two or all three of those, I suppose. Yeah, I think all three probably apply. All right. This one's from Bloomberg. The families of Sandy Hook school shooting victims voted overwhelmingly in favor of a plan to wrap up Alex Jones's bankruptcy proceedings by liquidating the right wing talk show host's assets. Jones's general unsecured creditors uh, comprise mostly of Sandy Hook families holding about one point five billion in defamation judgments against the famed conspiracy theorist. 
They voted unanimously, 100% in favor of Chapter 11 plans that would methodically liquidate and redistribute his property and cash while preserving potential legal actions against parties affiliated with Alex Jones and his InfoWars program. The parties are scheduled to hold plan approval. Um, There's a hearing for that in late March. So there was another plan put forward by Alex Jones where he's like, can I just give you five million a year for 10 years and then we can think about it later? No. 100% of the creditors, (laughs) of the people who he owes money to were like, nope, we're going to liquidate your shit. Yeah, and that's coming, right? In a month from now, we'll be there. So in this from the Washington Post, a bipartisan ethics panel in Wisconsin has recommended felony charges against one of Donald Trump's fundraising arms in relation to an alleged scheme that it says was meant to circumvent campaign finance laws to take out a powerful GOP lawmaker who has turned against Trump, namely Robin Voss. The Wisconsin Ethics Commission this week found probable cause that Trump's Save America Committee a state lawmaker and multiple local Republican officials committed felonies by exceeding donor limits to Voss's opponent, a Trump ally named Steen, and recommended six district attorneys investigate and prosecute them. In addition to Save America, the commission referred for prosecution Steen's campaign, the three county parties, and nine, count them, one less than ten, nine individuals, including county party officials and donors. As I'm starting to think this <laughs> crime was widespread. I'm, I'm starting to think it was not just in Georgia. I'm beginning mm-hmm. to think that there was a there was a large plan afoot across mm-hmm. many states uh, to to <laughs> engage in crime to try and keep him in office. Yep, yep. The rats are eating each other. Um, and now. New York Attorney General's civil fraud trial, where Judge Angoron fined Trump and his associates and sons $364 million. Trump asked for a stay, and he wanted motions practice on downgrading Judge Angoron's ruling, meaning he wanted to be able to have a, a briefing schedule, you know, where one party files their motion and another party responds, and then there's a third sir reply. He wanted motion. That's called a motions practice. On, on downgrading Judge Angoran's ruling. The judge denied that, and Donald filed one last-ditch attempt. The attorney general's office filed a response reminding the court that Trump already asked for all this, and the court declined. So this is stupid. And Judge Angoran agreed and responded to Trump's request with the following. You have failed to explain, much less justify, any basis for a stay. The order was then entered on the docket, Pete, starting the 30-day clock to appeal. Let's go. Um, Yep. Trump on Monday, by the way, filed a notice that he's going to appeal, but he didn't actually file the appeal and he hasn't posted the bond necessary to stop Tish James from seizing his assets. So he only has a few days left to come up with that money. This seems like a a, a Haba stratagem to try and get something and which will fail. And the best part, I think you may have even uh, tweeted about it. Some enterprising folks have started doing debt calculators, you know, like yeah. you can go sites and see what the U.S. national debt is. But now they got like the Trump debt. And it's a lot. I mean, I want to say it's like eighty six to $100,000 a day that is accruing in interest as they start, you know, continue going along down the path here. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a not insubstantial amount of money already on the plate for him, but it's getting bigger. I mean, think yeah. about it. I mean, truly, it's like in two weeks time, it's it's a million dollars more, more than a million dollars more. It's like 1.2 yeah. or 1.3 million dollars more. So and the counter at first was counting up cents, like the cents were going up. And now it's dollars. <laughs> like it's, oh, no, we're, we, it's accruing. <laughs> we can't can't have that many decimals. Just dollars is enough. Now, similarly, <laughs> in the E. Jean Carroll case, Trump asked for an indefinite stay for post-trial motions 
arguing, and I get this, he's saying, I'm so rich that I shouldn't have to post a bond. <laughs> Judge Kaplan responded, quote, 25 days after the jury verdict in this case, and only shortly before the expiration of Rule 62's automatic stay of enforcement of the judgment, Mr. Trump has moved for an administrative stay of enforcement pending the filing and disposition of any post-trial motions. He seeks relief without posting any security. This court declines to grant any stay, much less an unsecured stay, without first having afforded plaintiff the opportunity to be heard. And so Eugene has until February the 29th, uh, what is that, Thursday, the day after you're listening to this, uh, to respond. And then Trump has until March the 2nd uh, to file a reply to that. <laughs> and I think, I think March the 8th is the 30-day uh, deadline. Uh, and we have an opinion and order in the Navarro case. Now, this isn't the Navarro contempt case. He's already going to prison for that. This is the Navarro uh, Re Replevin. Is that what it's called? Where he was, you know, he he kept a bunch of presidential records and was forced to turn them over. And the, the, the judge says this matter concerns defendants compliance with this court's ruling as it refers or as it relates to the production of presidential records in defendant's control. On March 9th, 2023, like a year ago, the court granted plaintiff's motion for summary judgment. That's the DOJ. And ordered Pete Navarro, among other things, to meet and confer with, with the plaintiff and propose search terms and methodology to unequivocally identify presidential records in the defendant's possession. Despite these court orders, defendant has refused to conduct all subsequent searches as required. Based on the court's review of the defendant's random sampling, it's clear that Pete Navarro continues to possess presidential records that have not been produced to their rightful owner, the United States. It is likewise clear that the defendant's error rate is not minimal, minimal or negligible and is likely unacceptably high. <laughs> <laughs> they just put that on his tombstone, right? Yeah. Pete Navarro. <laughs> error rate was neither minimal or negligible. In fact, <laughs> <It's> unacceptably, <laughs> high. unacceptably high. Right. Tombstone material right there. Accordingly, plaintiff's motion to enforce, that's the DOJ's motion to enforce, the court orders is granted. Defendant is ordered to show cause why he should not be held in contempt on or before March 21st. Upon receipt of defendant's response to, to the court's show cause order, the court shall refer this matter to a magistrate judge for supervision with the aim of bringing this litigation to its final resolution. Meanwhile, the court directs the defendant to reprocess the remaining records in his possession on or before March 20th, which appears to be about 600 things, <laughs> 600 <laughs> records. <laughs> How much you want to bet Pete ain't going to get to it. There's going to be, yeah. he, there, there, it, this is so, so aggravating. This is, this is what happens when the court orders a Trump person to do something and the Trump person refuses to do it. Then the DOJ files a motion to enforce the court order. The court has now granted it and has given deadlines and has and says you and now you have to explain to us why I don't hold you in contempt and I'm giving this to a magistrate judge to babysit your ass because we're, <laughs> I'm tired of this case basically <laughs> yes and your inability to follow the simple direction of the court's orders and so yeah. right so oh, and now we'll by the way Trump is using this uh Pete Navarro thing as a as a reason to dismiss his Mar-a-Lago shit he's like come on you didn't arrest Pete Navarro for hanging on to presidential records, so you sh you shouldn't have arrested me for hanging on to my presidential records, which also happen to be uh, not presidential records, <laughs> classified documents. But he's actually saying you should do a replevin thing with me. That's that's way cooler. <laughs>
And we'll see what Judge Cannon is say about that. So, and <sighs> and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has asked for a narrowly tailored gag order at a Trump's first criminal trial, which is set to begin in less than a month on March 25th. Here are the elements: one, making or directing others to make public statements about known or reasonably foreseeable witnesses concerning their potential participation in the investigation or in this criminal proceeding; two making or directing others to make public statements about A, counsel in the case other than the district attorney, B, members of the court staff and the district attorney's staff, C, or the family members of any counsel or staff member if those statements are made with the intent to materially interfere with or to cause others to materially interfere with counsel's or staff's work in this criminal case or with the knowledge that such interference is highly likely to result. Three. Finally, making or directing others to make public statements about any prospective juror or any juror in this criminal proceeding. Hmm. Now, having looked through that, do you, any chance whatsoever that one, assuming this is granted, and I would think given other trials that have issued uh, such gag orders that this is likely to be adopted, I would imagine, any chance Trump is able to abide by that order if granted? Well, he'll argue that he shouldn't have to. But if he's forced to, I don't know. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> um, I he So far, he's kind of abided by the limited narrow gag order in the D.C. trial. Um, he didn't at first, uh, but after a few rounds with the court, uh, he did. So I imagine the same thing will happen here. He'll test the boundaries. He'll be dragged in. There'll be motions to, you know, hold them in contempt and they'll say, OK, we're going to modify the bail conditions and then don't do it again. You know, same. I think the same thing will probably happen that happened in the D.C. case. Yeah. And I'm wondering, too, like D.C. has been quiet because it's up with the uh, waiting on the Supreme Court to say something, say anything. And I know on uh, I think on the Jack podcast, if you haven't, you're going to be talking to somebody, uh, Steve Vladek, I think, who's saying the longer this goes, the better, worse news that is for Trump that they're going to rule against immunity. But we're still still waiting on that. And I think it could be that Trump has not run afoul of Judge Chutkin's orders because he simply hasn't had any real courtroom proceedings to get snippy about. So we'll see. I will see. I don't, I'm not. His ability to control himself, uh, I think of him much like a seven-year-old and they're that sort of age of, you know, a typical, you know, young child's ability to control their emotions when they're agitated. And I think he's getting worse. Um, well, he would. I mean, yeah. I mean, some of his speeches are just been right. crazy. And again, we're not. You know, we're talking about it here. But it, the funny thing is, like, I, I, I'm still surprised every time he makes not only either like strange, you know, arguing whether or not he actually has the mental acuity that he needs to to be president, but then also some of the extraordinarily racist things he was saying. It, you know, it's oh, like God. lights are so bright, I can't, I can only see the black people in here. It's like, oh my God, yeah, or black people like me because I was indicted for crime. Indi- right? Yeah, give me a come on, come on. You know, my black voter friends, we, you and I both know what it's like to be discriminated against. Like, wow. Okay, <laughs> all right, right. And there was a ton of that. Yeah. And if you're listening to us and you haven't heard that, I mean, two things. One, go listen to it. But two, ask yourself, why is it that you haven't heard about it? Why is that not the kind of thing that isn't above the phone front page news about just horrible, racist, discriminatory, you know, belief and statements that 
should be very much part of the conversation about whether or not he's fit to be president. But Well, because you know, Joe Biden are. accidentally said Mexico instead of Egypt one time. Yeah, so. Sure. Yes, yes, yes. All right. We're going to do a deep dive into some of these bigger stories, but we do have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, welcome back. We have more patrons to thank. Kyle Stewart McJunkin, Mary Reardon, Sheila and Jason Justice is Coming Myers, C.K. Stevens, SPI Maker, Milkshake Jake the Ethical Dog, Autocratic Megafascists, a.k.a. Trump is a Two-Headed Dildo, Evelyn Stapleton, Lauren Stapleton, Jacob B., and Tiffany Bo Helton. Thank all of you so much for your support. Thank you for. Right. <laughs> I have to. I have to break it. The autocratic mega fascists is a, is a reference to a Daily Beans episode called uh, "Charismatic Mega Plastics," and ah. it's about you know what subsequently came after that name. <laughs> nice. Because there were there was a group of parents leading a group of, of children cleaning up a creek side, and one of the kids found one of those items and uh, was hitting I his see. friends in the face with it. It was a, it was one of our more like most hilarious episodes. <laughs> um, it was in the good news section where people submit stories, and uh, that that was charismatic mega plastics. That's the autocratic mega fascist. Mega I said that. Well, thanks for that. That now it makes a lot more sense. But anyway, mm. thank. Thank you. Thank you. You this is, you know, part of what you 
do is allow us to bring you all this news that you might not hear elsewhere. And so thank you for your support because it's absolutely essential to what we're doing. So with that, let's let's go. Let's talk Russia. Let's uh, head over to the arrest and rearrest of Jim Comer's star witness, the GOP star witness, not just James Comer, the, the House and all these Senate Republicans, uh, <laughs> their star witness and also somebody who allegedly happens to be a Russian disinformation mule named Alexander Smirnov. Now, we already know Smirnov was charged with lying to the FBI and falsifying a document, the 1023, which is an FBI form which records uh, information that a source provides you. Now, this 1023 from him said that, among other things, Hunter and Joe Biden accepted bribes from Burisma. Now, to catch you up, uh, Smirnoff was arrested and uh, Special Counsel Weiss asked for pretrial detention. Now, he was arrested in Vegas or outside of Vegas, and a Nevada magistrate judge uh, took the pretrial services recommendation that he could be released and let him go with a GPS monitor. Now, the jurisdiction then went to the Central District of California, but Smirnoff's lawyer tried to get another hearing in Nevada for Smirnoff's continued release because the government said, hey, look, we, we were appealing that uh, decision because we don't think he can safely be uh, released on his own recognizance, even with GPS monitoring. So Weiss filed a motion to reconsider it. And then the California judge said, hey, look, by trying to get a hearing in Nevada, Smirnoff's attorneys were trying to help Smirnoff flee the United States, which was, may have been overblown language. But he said, hey, I'm setting a hearing for Monday morning. And during that hearing, the California judge heard all the evidence, heard from the government, heard from Smirnoff's attorneys. And he said, you know what? Nope. I'm ordering Smirnoff jailed pending his trial. Yeah. And um, I, I, Smirnoff even came back with more bail conditions, right? Like, like uh, I promise I won't get, like, I got a letter from the Israeli consulate who says they will not issue me another passport. Like, he went out of his way to try to, you know, see if he could get to stay uh, out of jail. Um, and no, he, he lost. The California judge says you have to uh, be detained. Uh, and a lot of that has to do maybe with the fact that, he lied to pretrial services. A Smirnoff did by saying he only had access to a few thousand dollars when in fact he had access to about six million dollars. And, uh, and, and that, and that uh, you know, David Weiss and Wise, who was the other prosecutor on this, Weiss and Wise, uh, the other prosecutor on this case, said, uh, look, he, he's got access to all this money. He lied. We might charge him with perjury for that. Uh, so <laughs> they, you know, they argued to the California judge and the California judge Judge Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, has overridden, I guess, what the magistrate judge in Nevada did by releasing him and said, nope, you got to go to jail until your trial. Yeah. And one of the things he offered through his attorneys is like, hey, look, we will pay for private security to watch him. And some of it's like, all right, well, if you're going to pay for private security to watch him at the same time, you're claiming the pre-trial services that you only have a few thousand dollars in the bank. Where are you going to get this money to pay for private security? To, I mean, the, the story just they doesn't were kind of like, up. all so, right, you know, you caught me. I got millions yeah, of dollars. It, it, right. Fine. <laughs> fine. Fine. So, you know, yes. We could see superseding uh, indictments on this guy. I wouldn't be very surprised at all. Yeah. And Honestly. I'm curious, too, that it didn't like the the attorneys, his attorneys made a little bit of a stink about saying to the California judge, hey, your honor, you kind of insinuated, if not outright said that, you know, we were helping him or we're going to help him, um, you know, dodge out of the U.S. And it came up in the hearing a little bit, but nobody, his attorneys didn't really make a big deal out of it. So, 
you know, whatever it was, it, it, there was no blockbuster like, you know, the government has, you know, a source who says the Evidence attorneys are working or- to get him overseas or something. But at the same time, his attorneys didn't like, you know, stand up and say, Your Honor, we're, you know, absolutely appalled at your mischaracterization of our motives and demands, you know, some sort of satisfaction. It kind of was not brushed aside, but it wasn't really addressed uh, during the hearing. No, and in the filing either, right? Because Smirnoff's attorneys were like, you said this, that's not true. And then they just kind of moved along. Um, But, you know, uh, it it, it was probably more likely, like you said, that the judge was just pissed that the lawyer for Smirnoff was trying to get a hearing in Vegas after jurisdiction already belonged to him. And so, you know, that's probably where that language comes from. Smirnoff's lawyers also argued, Pete, that they were that that Smirnoff never would have been charged if Weiss and Wise had not tried to use the 1023 to indict Hunter Biden on FARA charges. Smirnoff's attorneys referred to the charges as make weight and politically motivated. Now, make weight means that's when you like add something to a scale to, you know, make it weigh what you want it to weigh. And Wise of the DOJ, of Weiss's team, responded, are you saying we're working at the direction of Trump and congressional Republicans? (laughs) Like, unprompted, he said that. Like, well, yeah, now kind of. But but that's what he took from Smirnoff's use of make weight and politically motivated. And and Marcy Wheeler wrote, uh, she said, it's likely that close scrutiny of Smirnoff's ties to Russia in, con- in the conjunction of involvement in two information operations, to say nothing of his possible retroactive reporting to cover it up, made the charges necessary. Close scrutiny of Smirnov's ties to Russia made the charges necessary. But, she said, it is also absolutely certain they would not have been charged if Wise had not used the FD-1023 to reopen the case against Hunter Biden and try to charge him with a bunch of felonies. So that's kind of where where her head's at with this right like this was you know bill barr shoving this 1023 down the throats of the delaware uh attorney uh, weiss back in 2020 saying you need to look into this because trump had just yelled at him about the hunter biden investigation in Oct- like right 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 before the election you remember the whole uh, reporting the, of of seeing Barr in the Oval Office and Trump screaming at him, and then I guess a few days later, Barr went to the you know to Brady and said, "You need to read in Weiss on this ten twenty three. We need to get this going." And so that uh, to you know to what Marcy Wheeler is saying seems to be kind of like a frame job of of of, Hun- of Hunter Biden. And what's interesting is that Leslie Wolf, she was an AUSA in Delaware, assistant U.S. attorney in Delaware. And the GOP, Jim Comer, uh, Ziegler, and Shapley, the two IRS whistleblowers, uh, Jim Jordan, they all say that her and the other prosecutors were refusing to cooperate with Scott Brady's office. Scott Brady is the guy who Bill Barr put in charge of of intercepting all the Rudy stuff from Ukraine. Uh, When in fact, what she was actually doing was likely protecting the Hunter Biden case from Rudy's garbage. So that when the whistleblowers like Shapley complained that they didn't get to see all the evidence or that uh, Leslie Wolf was refusing to accept evidence from Scott Brady, what she was actually doing was protecting them from bad evidence that would become Jenks material, right? That's stuff that 
uh, could be and now will be used as ammunition by Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell. Uh, and Jenks material as a reminder, can you explain what Jenks material is? Yeah, so there's Jenks material is statements of a uh, typically statements of a witness, and I always mix up Jinx and Giglio and things that can be used to impugn uh, or talks about their uh, credibility as a witness. So if somebody has a you know history of they lied about something, or if somebody was you know has a, a drug problem, things that you would look and say you know are prior statements where they've you know said things that are directly relevant to things that they're claiming testimony that gets turned over so that the defense can, you know, if they're going to be a witness, the defense can say, hey, look, isn't it true you also said this? Or isn't it true that you also were being paid by the government this amount of money? Or isn't it true that in the past life that, you know, you were found not credible in prior testimony? So um, that's that's there. And I, you're right. I mean, I think there is no keener observer of what is going on with Smirnoff than Abby Lowell and his team, because this is very much, I think, going to... Uh, you know, provide a window into just what was going on. And there's some, you know, there were, there were no doubt in my mind, some shenanigans going on with Barr and with uh, Brady in the Western District of Pennsylvania about all the stuff coming in from Rudy and others. And now we know at least, uh, you know, according to Smirnoff, that the, the allegation is it was Russian disinformation. So to the extent Abby Lowell can use that to undermine what the government is trying to prove in Hunter Biden's case, it's going to be very useful to them. Yeah, and we'll bring that up when we talk about that um, motion to compel uh, response from Hunter Biden's lawyers a little bit later in the show. And, you know, that kind of makes Weiss, if all this is what Marcy is saying is uh, got weight to it, um, that makes Weiss a, 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 a witness <laughs> in this case. And so she sums it up like this. Leo Wise seemingly used the Smirnoff 1023 as an excuse to reopen the case against the president's son, only to discover it opened a nasty can of worms. It gave Abby Lowell the evidence to prove that the prosecution of Hunter Biden was infected by an effort by the attorney general to accommodate the dirt that Trump's lawyers picked up from Russian spies. And it gave Wise a, a, a real headache of a prosecution to deal with. And I think that that's true in a lot of uh, of, of ways, because now all of this is might have to come out in discovery. And that's, again, we'll talk about that. But Pete, I have some good news for you. Yay. I have some good news. House Judiciary <laughs> Committee ranking member Jerry Nadler urged Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz to investigate former U.S. Attorney Scott Brady for providing false or misleading testimony to the committee during a transcribed interview in October 2023. In a letter to Merrick Garland and I.G. Horowitz, Nadler says, during his October 23rd, 2023 transcribed interview before the Judiciary Committee, Mr. Brady repeatedly testified that he had vetted and found credible statements made by a confidential human source now identified as Smirnoff. Of course, on February 14th, 2024, a federal grand jury in the, the District of California, Central District of California, indicted him for making false statements to the FBI and creating false and fictitious records. Uh, given what we now know about Mr. Smirnoff, it seems unlikely that Mr. Brady actually verified any of the information Smirnoff provided to the FBI. Brady's testimony to the contrary does not appear to be a mere misstatement. His comments were deliberate, repeated, and detailed. Mr. Brady's testimony before the committee also sheds light on a much broader pattern of misconduct. During his interview, Brady stated that he directed the FBI to conduct the June 2020 interview with Smirnoff, who is alleged to have ties to Russian intelligence, despite reluctance from FBI agents handling the matter. If true, 
Brady appears to have been part of a deliberate attempt to launder foreign disinformation through the Department of Justice. Ooh, so looks like uh, Jerry Nadler is with you on team you need to investigate this Department of Justice. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see. I mean, keep in mind, too, that, you know, Nadler, the, the Democrats are in the minority, so it's not doesn't usually carry the same weight if, uh, you know, the majority, the the chair of a committee sends a letter, the, the DOJ and most federal agencies understand that, you know, if they don't respond, that committee can turn around and subpoena people to come in or, you know, hold hearings. Uh, the minority can't do that. So the hope I have is that people understand that this is a righteous ask and request on the part of Nadler, I do think. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't think Republicans, the Republicans do a much better job of sort of playing the refs. And if you look at everything from Chuck Grassley to people who scream and tend to get, you know, folks like the IG to sort of jump up straight and go do their their bidding. Like to get the 1023 released. Right. I don't think the Democrats do as good a job of that. So we'll see where this leads. But it's clear, you know, if anything, if I'm if I'm Chris Ray at the FBI, you know, to the extent there are allegations like this, I want to be able to have some protection of the FBI and the agents within the FBI saying, no, we we thought it was nonsense and Brady insisted that we do it. But Keep in mind when it and there there are weird things, Allison, like the the travel records and whether or not that they verified that Smirnoff traveled when he said he did. There's some conflicting statements around when he did travel, whether or not the actual records uh, back that up. And there's some conflicting statements in there. So there it, it isn't. I mean, attorneys, AUSAs and U.S. attorneys can do some stuff. But when you hear people doing things, typically that's an FBI investigator doing it, whether it's an agent or an analyst. So I would want, if anything else, the IG to take a look at it just so there's a clean bill of health that they can say, no, the the, the FBI did this the right way. And to the extent mm -hmm. there's malfeasance, it was on the part of Brady. But, you know, again, whether or not the the IG, you know, they've got this, they've got to look in. I hope they're looking into the, you know, how the hell did we not how were we not prepared for January 6th? How did DOJ and the mm -hmm. FBI not have any better sense of what was coming, given the fact that, you know, 80% of America paying attention knew what was going to happen? Why didn't you go into that closet in Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, what, what, right, right. You know, just like, <laughs> oh, it's locked. That's fine. Shelving. No, nope, oh. leave it alone. Next, we have we have don't we have like four different search warrants we have to execute today? Let's just get to the next yeah, one. Yeah, keep going, keep going. So you know, we'll see. But uh, I was glad to see that letter because there are certainly reasonable uh, questions being raised there. Yeah. And so you've got the GOP in Congress saying that you're keeping that 1023 from us because it's pivotal evidence. And you've got, you know, Wolf down at the Delaware saying, you know, just keep that garbage away from this investigation or you're going to ruin it. And uh, sure enough, <laughs> we're in that spot right now, and there's a lot more we could find out in the coming days and weeks and months, and we'll be here to tell you about it. But right now, we have to take a quick break. We have more news, but everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. 
He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have more new patrons to thank, including Chuck Bramlett, Elizabeth Steiner, Nathan Dorn, Headphone underscore Friends with a Z, Scott Shannon, Barbara Gibbs, uh, Tadrick Anderson, Acting President, Pete Struck F-Bomb-Laden Rant Preservation Society. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy Dunow, or Doinow, Thomas Zapetta McMillan, Bocce Balls, B-O-T-C-H-I-E Balls, and We Can Feed Everybody. That's a nice name, We Can Feed Everybody. You were right, because we can. All right, since we covered the Smirnoff saga, and since he was part of the David Weiss investigation into Hunter Biden's uh, stuff, uh, let's discuss Abby Lowell's response in support of Hunter Biden's motion to compel in the gun charges case. So this is a supporting brief in Hunter Biden's original motion to compel discovery to try to get all this stuff from David Weiss. And it opens by saying the prosecution's response to Mr. Biden's motion to compel simultaneously seeks an unnecessary fight about tangential issues and then avoids addressing actual disputes that have been identified. For one example, the opposition focuses more on what the prosecutors have produced rather than what they have not, and then steadfastly objects that it should not be required to declare that it has fulfilled its Brady and related discovery obligations. Another example is the prosecution's rhetoric accusing Mr. Biden of making misleading omissions and being dishonest for not addressing what the prosecution has produced, despite this being a motion to compel what the prosecution has not produced. The law does not give the prosecution a participation trophy for playing in the event. They should finish the process without a defendant cheering them for partial efforts. (laughs) (laughs) The section is now now called the prosecution refuses to confirm its compliance with its discovery obligations. And this is the kind of the crux of this filing. Prosecutors typically welcome the opportunity to confirm that they have done so. Just as Mr. Wise did, not Weiss, but Wise, did at the hearing. It's curious that the prosecution will not make that commitment now and opposes an order to comply with Brady. And uh, Pete, the reason Hunter's attorney 
says they just want a confirmation that Weiss and Wise have complied with Brady is because Wise said they complied with Brady seven months ago, but was wrong because three months after Wise and Weiss said they met their Brady obligations, Wise and Weiss actually produced more Brady material in three different productions of Discovery. They go on to say, Mr. Biden's concerns don't rest solely upon the fact that the prosecution was wrong when they mistakenly claimed Brady compliance previously. Those concerns have only grown as the defense has increasingly come to realize the scope of the prosecution's curious investigative techniques. And then Abby Lowell gives an example. He says, take, for example, the prosecution's heavy reliance on a brown leather pouch that it claims belonged to Mr. Biden and contained cocaine residue. Mr. Biden noted in his motion to compel that law enforcement obtained that pouch in October 2018 from a garbage scavenger who pulled it from a public trash can. The prosecution treats this evidence as its smoking gun. If that were so, despite the pouch's questionable provenance, it is dumbfounding that the prosecution waited five years before testing it for narcotics residue and never chose to retrieve fingerprints from it. The prosecution offers no explanation for any of that. And then Abby Lowell brings up Weiss's latest filing and, and the fact that it included a photo of sawdust on a table saw and claimed that it was a photo Hunter Biden took and that it was of cocaine. So that whole thing sort of came to be, you know, David Weiss, the prosecution, put a picture of this table saw with sawdust lined up like lines of coke. and in the filing said Hunter Biden took this photo and look, it's cocaine. So he's therefore, you know, definitely had was a cocaine addict when he had this gun. Now, as it turns out, the text messages surrounding that photo prove that the photo was actually taken by somebody else, a carpenter. And that photo was given to a guy named Ablo, who is a Fox News correspondent. Uh, and that it's not the, the the text messages also prove that it's not cocaine because what the what the carpenter guy was saying is like i've got a cocaine addiction he's uh, you know a, a, i guess a friend or associate of hunter biden i've got a cocaine addiction i have to choose between my addiction and the thing i love which is woodworking here's my choice and he shows his saw with sawdust lined up like cocaine as if to say i'm choosing woodworking you know yeah and i think it actually may be worse than that i think it was somebody who was a counselor and who got that from one of the people in their counseling who was struggling with addiction and said, hey, you've got to choose between your addiction and your craft. And so the 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 other person he was counseling sent him that photograph to say, look, I've I've chosen woodworking. I mean, it, you know, haha, mm -hmm. you know, I've made lines like as if it were cocaine, but it's, you know, sawdust. it's my new, it's my addiction. That, it was and that it was, the think, message was woodworking is my addiction. Now. Right. And then I think that the counselor sent that to Hunter and said, I hope you make the same decision. Good decision. If that's accurate, yeah. then you've got like a piercing, potential piercing of, you know, that's a, that's a potentially a licensed psychiatrist or counseling his like violation, patient. Right? And yeah, or, you know, th those are privileged communications. So there's a bunch that looks bad. And again, things happen in prosecutions. But when you're prosecuting Hunter Biden, you've got to know this is going to be scrutinized. It's such a minute level of detail that this just looks really bad. And, you know, everybody's Hannity was putting that up there saying, oh, you know, people are saying sawdust. You tell me, is that sawdust? Yeah, Sean, it's fucking sawdust. It's, you know, no question about it. You know, somebody, you know, kind of put it out in lines, but it's not, 
difficult if you have half a brain to and understand see the that context it is. of the exchange. And, and this is exactly, you know, if you're Abby Lowell saying, you know, you, you put this false information out there, it's inaccurate. And now my, you know, my defendant client is being pilloried in the court of public opinion for something that's utterly false that you, government, messed up in your filing. So, you know, it's good. Good luring by Abby Lowell. It's unfortunate that Hunter Biden is having to you know, defend himself against nonsense like this. But it, it just I worry or not worry. I, I think it may be a harbinger of a lot of other systemic problems that are going to start coming out. Mm, yeah, I think they'll come out, too. Yeah. So we'll, you know, stay, stay tuned. I mean, if there's one thing that uh, Abby Lowell is good at, it's very vigorously defending Hunter Biden. He launched, you know, not only this uh, filing, but it was part of a mass uh, series of filings, all of which, you know, some may be, you know, have a small chance to success, but there's some are real. And keep in mind, too, there's this whole question about whether or not the gun charges are constitutional at all. Right. Given right. recent Supreme Court rulings that says, well, no, you can't prohibit somebody from having a gun, you know, based on, uh, you know, certain you know, previously disqualifying uh, factors. So, you know, with that, uh, Lowell, as part of that, brings up the Smirnoff indictment and he says, hey, look, quote, nevertheless, with prodding from extremist Republican members of Congress who initiated an impeachment inquiry of President Biden based on the same baseless allegations and the right wing media. The prosecution team that was already pursuing Mr. Biden resuscitated the baseless investigation of Mr. Smirnov's ridiculous claims against Mr. Biden 34 months later. Mm. It now seems clear that the Smirnov allegations infected this case and why, on July 26, 2023, the special counsel answered as it did the court's question about whether the diversion agreement's immunity provision would bar charges under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Continues, lo and behold. Some seven months later, the special counsel finally figured out that Mr. Smirnov was lying, which should have been obvious to everyone, certainly by August 2020, when DOJ closed the investigation. The special counsel charged Mr. Smirnov with lying and obstruction, but the more interesting part of the story is not that Mr. Smirnov lied. It is more remarkable that beginning in July 2023, the special counsel's team would follow Mr. Smirnov down his rabbit hole of lies as long as it did. Disclosure about why the special counsel abandoned its June-July 2023 agreements with Mr. Biden and the role played by the Smirnoff allegations may reveal flaws worse than mistaking sawdust for cocaine. If the prosecution believes it is now fully satisfied its Brady obligations, rather than deny Mr. Biden's motion, the prosecution should just affirmatively confirm as much to defense counsel and the court, rather than bemoan Mr. Biden's filing. Mm. Also, th th this is starting to feel I, – I'm starting to feel like I did with, with John Durham's yeah. court filings about Danchenko and, and Sussman. There, there's starting to be a little bit of like fraying around the edges where you're like, oh boy, is this like you know the entire tapestry going to start mm. to fall apart? I, it, it ain't great. No. No, it isn't great. And I think we'll continue to learn more uh, as we go on. Uh, but this does, to me, feel like an indictment of Smirnoff to clean up a mess, a can of worms that they opened by trying to follow this down the rabbit hole. Uh, all right. Uh, and in a related story, there was a hearing this week in the defamation lawsuit brought by John Paul Mac Isaac against Hunter Biden in Delaware. If you'll remember in 2021, Biden said to CBS, quote, there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. It could be that I was hacked. 
It could be that it was the it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me or that there was a laptop stolen from me. Now, that's the statement that John Paul Mac Isaac is saying is defamatory. Biden's attorney asked for summary judgment, saying Hunter Biden didn't say you did. He said it could. You know, <laughs> so this is not doesn't meet the legal definition of defamation. Now, Mac Isaac's attorney, Ronald Pol- Poliquin, I guess is how you pronounce that. He argued that Hunter Biden intentionally used those words during his interview. Quote, he's a lawyer. He's media savvy. He knows exactly what he's doing. Well, OK, so he didn't defame you. Now, Biden's attorney argued that it wasn't Biden that made Mac Isaac famous. He, he said, who identified John Paul Mac Isaac to the world? Let's think about that. Was it Mr. Biden or was it the 11 or 12 or 13 or 15 or 54 television appearances that Mr. Mac Isaac made? Now, Gary Grumbach, who's reporting for NBC, said, as an aside, Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney, said that when 51 intelligence officials suggested the New York Post story about Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, their, quote, conjecture in 2020 was probably apt referencing this week's news of the indictment of Alexander Smirnov. Now, Judge Robinson did not make a ruling from the bench. He said he would be issuing a ruling in writing in the coming weeks, and we'll bring that to you when we have it. Yeah, what's interesting about that argument from uh, Mac Isaac's attorney is there, there are different standards for defamation if you are a public figure. And one of those is like, if you are a public figure to claim that somebody has defamed you, it has to, it goes to a higher level what's called actual malice, that somebody you know knew that it was false or had a reckless disregard for the truth. But in any event, it is easier to bring a defamation charge if you're not a public figure. But now Mac Isaac's saying, hey, look, everybody. McIsaac, it was 11, 12, 13, 14, or 54 appearances. So if you're trying to, maybe they've already given up on trying to argue that Mac Isaac is, in fact, a public figure. But if you're going to try and argue that he isn't, that's not the argument you want to make. I mean, it's the, the inverse of the argument you want to make. But I would not, I think the judge will take his time, but I would not at all be, my guess, throws it out, dismisses the yeah, case because I it think seems be like weak, weak tea with this. Yeah, it's weak sauce. As Judge Emmett Meta would say, it's pretty weak sauce, Pete Navarro. <laughs> All right, we have uh, one more story, a couple more stories to get to, but we need to take one last quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry 
We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. We have a lot to cover from this past week down in Fulton County, but first, more patrons to thank. Jacqueline Lee, boy, would I love to be the bus driver. You guys rock. Marty Dilger, Brandy Kubel, Pinky, Christy Wood, Roberta Barrera, Tegan, Penelope is glad Sydney got sanctioned for Terpsichore, and Edgy Veggie. Thank all of you nice. so much for your support. That's, uh, again, you, you are, you're truly friends of the program. Cannot do this without your partnership, and uh, thank you so much. Now, down in Georgia, there's a battle going on in Fulton County over phone records that were obtained by the Trump team trying to disqualify District Attorney Fonnie Willis and impeach Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Now, what appears to have happened is that AT&T, which is a, the provider, it appears, of Nathan Wade's cellular service, uh, it looks like received a subpoena from either Lambert, who was uh, Mike Roman's attorney, or from a group of attorneys uh, you know, of, that have signed on to uh, Roman's filing, asking for telephone records of a witness. What I did not realize, I mean, if you're in the government, there's a very high standard to do it. You can issue a subpoena, which is going to get you called detail records, which essentially like the date and time and duration of a call, who you made the call to, or if a call was incoming. But if you want to get into location information, there's a much higher standard. Uh, and I think the case, there's a Supreme Court case called Carpenter a couple of years ago, which which raised the standard because there was some sort of incidental location data that some providers were turning over to the government. And Carpenter held that, no, 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 you need problem and cause. In other words, a search warrant, if you're going to get the location data. What I didn't know, and as it turns out, if civil litigants or criminal defendants can issue subpoenas to get these records, not just for themselves, but for other witnesses. And it looks like that's what happened, that you know, Mike uh, Roman's legal team and others sent a subpoena to AT&T to get Wade's telephone account information, cell phone account information. They got not only his uh, phone activity, his text activity, but also the cell tower sites that uh, his phone was associating with. Now, a couple of, and forgive me for diving down into a little bit of a rabbit hole. There are two different levels of location, right? You can have like every time your cell phone is on, it is associated with a particular cell tower and that information is collected by carriers. There is, and, and but that's big, like, right? You know, think about a cell tower services a very, you know, comparatively large area. It's certainly not going to narrow down to a house or anything like that. It can be a very big area. I'm talking, you know, radius of half a mile or so, or give or take. 
They also can collect very granular data based on your GPS location, whether that's through apps you're using, but can put you like, you know, think about if you have like find my phone turned on, or if you have some sort of, you know, uh, tracking device, you can get it down to a very precise location. What it looks like the uh, way the, the Mike Roman team got is that bigger sort of cell tower location, but it's still enough based on what they're claiming to say, hey, look, Nathan Wade was in the area of Fonnie Willis's residence during certain times, predating when he said they had a relationship. Now, it's not clear to me that, you know, it's going to be compelling in terms of the argument, but what that, the the first thing we were initially wondering is like, well, how did they get all this data? And then Fonnie Willis, interestingly to me, she asked that question in a court filing saying, the state questions whether Mr. Trump legally obtained the cell site location information, which is generally only available after finding a probable cause and the issuance of a search warrant. And again, like I said, that's true for the government, but it's not at all true if you're a civil or criminal defendant. And that bugs me a little bit that they didn't recognize that, but you know, like many good folks, and again, our friend Anna Bauer mm-hmm. and others down in Atlanta, you know, talking to Georgia defense attorneys, you're like, no, 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 this is you can do. We do it all the time. You know, I've gotten my, you know, defendant. I got his cell records. I provided that to the prosecutor as you know, proving his alibi that he wasn't there, and they dropped the charges. But this is something that you know, criminal and civil defense attorneys do regularly. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, you know, the Fonnie Willis also argued that the Trump team didn't provide sufficient notice of their intention to introduce the phone records using an expert testimony, because there's a certain amount of time you got to give somebody. You remember my cousin Vinny? <laughs> He's like, Your <laughs> Honor, we did not get sufficient time to review this expert's testimony, let alone, you know, and he's like, overruled. That is a prescient, wonderful <laughs> argument, but you're overruled. So that's that's Fonnie Willis's argument. But Trump says that their witness that's going to introduce these phone records into testimony isn't an expert. He's just a guy who's going to summarize the data. And then Fonnie Willis argued the phone records don't show anything other than the fact that their two cell phones were in a larger area at the same time and don't don't prove a romantic relationship occurred. Right. Like how does cell phone data approve or, or prove that there was a romantic relationship? Because Willis and Wade both testified that they were friends since, you know, they in 2021. Um, and then, oh, you know, Willis also said, I was at three murder investigation crime scenes in the area during that time as well. Um, now, she um, questioned the qualifications of the private investigator who was hired by Trump and Mike Roman to conduct the analysis of the cell phone data. Apparently, that's the expert. And she also argued Uh, Willis did that this filing by Trump is a move to garner salacious media headlines, including Trump providing unredacted cell phone records to members of the media. Now, I want to be clear here that the reporter that the unredacted cell phone records were given to in this instance did not publish. Okay, Um, and I want to make that clear. But nevertheless, on Monday, CNN reported that Willis and Nathan Wade both changed their phone numbers because of an explosion of calls in recent days. And that came after the unredacted version of the motion, including exhibits, was shared with counsel on both sides. Now, Trump's lead's attor- lead attorney in the Georgia case told the DA's office that he mistakenly shared the unredacted phone records with a reporter before the motion was filed. But that, again, that reporter did not publish, uh, but those were shared with Trump's attorneys. 
Now Trump. Uh, so, th- you know, I don't know. Um, I mean, clearly they got out because there was an explosion of of calls and they had to change their cell phone uh, records. Obviously, the reporter didn't do it um, from the Atlanta. It was for a reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did not publish those. Uh, but I, I don't know how they got out. Uh, but that's uh, another story that's in the news on this just this past Monday. Yeah, and I'm going to call a little, you know, somebody saying, well, you know, innocent mistakes happen, but uh, nonsense. Trump said there, there's a pattern of this, and I'll give With you an Trump, example. Yeah. When, Trump, when Trump filed his lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and, you know, scads of other people for RICO conspiracy, including me, including Andy McCabe, including James Comey, including Kevin Kinesmith, including others, they act the same deal mistakenly put all our home addresses there and put it into the public docket. So essentially nothing like getting doxxed by the president of the United States, but there's a pattern of this. And then you had like U.S. prosecutors down in Florida scrambling to get them to pull that out of the docket and redact it and remove it from things like court listener and everywhere that it goes. This isn't the first time it happens. There is a striking series of mistakes where they accidentally <laughs> put personal information like that that should be redacted. They know full well exactly what is going to happen. And they have a pattern of doing this. And it it frustrates me when, you know, people try and make excuses to say, oh, you know, it's just a mistake. No, it's not. It's not. No, and Trump Trump is trying to unseal witness lists that are under a protective order in Florida by first of all, he tacked them on to a motion to compel and then filed a motion to unseal those exhibits in a motion to compel. And of course, that this is the whole thing, by the way, that where Jack Smith is like, you made because Judge Eileen Cannon said they should be unsealed. And he's like, no, you've made a clear error in the law. Um, this is manifest injustice. Um, uh, and they've been fully briefed now on both sides about this because he said, I, you know, I, I'm filing a motion for you to reconsider your ruling because I think you made an egregious error. Uh, and we haven't gotten her final word on that yet. But um, I imagine if she again orders to unseal these witness lists and, you know, there's testimony and other things in there, too, that is under a protective order for discovery under the guise of it being part of a motion to compel. I think that he will appeal to the 11th Circuit. But Trump has a very long sordid history of accidentally. Remember when he accidentally put uh, Obama's address on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and ended up having some crazy person get arrested because they were there. Mm-hmm. Like, weren't they like live casting, like looking to you know find Obama's place? Uh, yeah, it's it's not mm-hmm. it's not by mistake. No. I'm very curious. I mean, again, it's not not topic of our show today, but whether or not Eileen Cannon, I think. clearly understands if she rules against the government, they're going to the 11th Circuit. And if she's ready to get smacked down like she was with the, uh, you know, the special, uh, uh, whatever the term was for the uh, judge who's going to the the special master for the stuff season Mar-a-Lago, if she's ready to get smacked down uh, again, or if she understands that wouldn't be a great thing for her. But we'll, we'll see. Yeah, something something else Trump was arguing, by the way, in, in this particular thing, and then we'll move on, was that Wade's cell phone data is proof of a romantic relationship. He responded, no, it's proof. And he also wants to introduce it to impeach Wade as a witness. And they also argue that the phone records were obtained legally through that subpoena to AT&T, as you, you were mentioning. And Judge McAfee has set a hearing on the disqualification matter for this Friday, March 1st, which you can watch on television or on Judge McAfee's YouTube channel. If you Google (laughs) Judge McAfee uh, YouTube courtroom, you'll get to his channel. You see him there with his arms folded like this is my YouTube channel. He gets his YouTube channel, gets more action than most people's. So anyway, 
Um, thanks to Anna Bowers for that thread on how they got the phone records. And uh, I think Renato Mariotti has tweeted saying he's pretty sure these phone records are going to make it into evidence because he thinks they were legally obtained. Um, in addition to the phone records fight, Nathan Wade has filed a post-hearing brief on the in-camera examination of attorney Terrence Bradley. Now, Bradley was Wade's attorney in Wade's divorce proceedings. And Wade is trying to prevent a lot of what Bradley is saying from coming in because of attorney-client privilege. Now, Trump's side is trying to get Bradley to testify that Wade and Willis had a romantic relationship prior to 2021. Wade is saying that even if Bradley did have information like that, he can't talk about it because it's protected by attorney-client privilege. And he also probably doesn't want any other salacious details of his divorce getting out into the public. So after a behind-closed-doors, or known as in-camera hearing, about whether or not the judge can examine Bradley, Wade filed a motion, and this is the, the post-hearing brief on what happened in that hearing. And he says the defendants were allowed broad leeway to pry into the private life of Special Prosecutor Wade in an unprecedented public manner, spanning two full days of testimony. The defendants sought to introduce intrusive and legally irrelevant personal details of multiple people's lives for the world to watch unfold in real time. But still, no credible evidence exists in the record to support their tenuous claims. If the court were now to disregard, quote, the most sacred of all legally recognized privileges, unquote, whose, quote, preservation is essential to the just and orderly operation of our legal system, unquote, it would be a step too far. And Special Prosecutor Wade is constrained to object. I have to object to, to you doing this, a judge. The, he said the court has already held at least 14 times that attorney-client privilege applies to the communications from, you know, Bradley. Uh, attorney Bradley testified he has no relevant personal knowledge. And he sought advice of both counsel and the state bar of Georgia on attorney-client privilege prior to that testimony. And Georgia law clearly prohibits compelled disclosure of attorney-client privilege communications at issue, even in camera. So even behind closed doors, you can't violate the attorney-client privilege. That's what Wade says. For the reasons set forth above, Wade is therefore compelled to object to any in-camera examination of Bradley that may unlawfully compel Bradley to disclose privileged communications to anyone. So... Uh, we still haven't had, so just so you know where we're at with this, Bradley has not been examined by Judge McAfee in camera yet. They had a hearing about whether they could in camera. They had that behind closed doors. Now Wade has po you know, filed his briefing post that hearing saying, I have to object don't do this in camera. Attorney-client privilege still stands. He doesn't have relevant testimony anyway. You can't even hear it, Judge. Uh, and they're trying to invoke the attorney-client privilege here. So that's the latest on, on that particular side battle. And by the way, none of these side battles, knowing Sadow, Trump's lawyer, and Mike Roman, you know, just his past behavior, none of these kinds of things are go going to go away. They're going to keep happening. Right. Agreed. And so the question is going to be, I think at some point, you know, they, they run out of things to, you know, dig up. And I think we'll know by the time this hearing rolls around on Friday in a couple of days where uh, McAfee is likely to come down. But I don't think, you know, the, in my mind, the cell phone, I agree with Renato, the cell phone information is going to be admitted. It does not prove anything about a relationship, let alone a conflict. It may impeach uh, Wade's credibility uh, to the extent there's information there at odds with what he said. I mean, again, this is all, it's an audience of one. It's Judge McAfee is the one who is, you know, weighing all this and we'll see 
uh, how it plays out. But uh, again, I, you know, it's I, I feel badly for him. I feel badly, certainly for Fonnie Willis, I, that you know all of this sort of personal stuff is getting dragged out into the, you know, yeah, into the into the debate. But again, the sooner we get past all this and figure out. Hopefully that yep the you know the charges against Trump stand and the hopefully DA can continue to prosecute him the the better off will be but the fact is we're not going to know that until March now so you know because Friday when's the first of March Thursday yeah um, Thursday yeah, Friday already because it leap year leap year this year right don't we have the 29th? January took a year but February just flew by um, but um, it's we're not going to be short of news next week. I've uh, just sitting here while recording this episode. I've gotten t- a couple of new news stories that we'll have to report on next week, including Ken Buck introducing a 25th Amendment resolution for Joe Biden. I mean, it's just it's oh, going to keep getting ridiculouser and ridiculouser as time goes on. What did he say in Anchorman? It's getting to be ridiculous. Goddamn. What does he say? Goddamn ridiculous. That's what he said. <laughs> When he has both of his arms torn off <laughs> outside of the bear enclosure. Okay, everybody, uh, your homework for next week is to go watch Anchorman. If you have not, it's about my beautiful hometown, uh, San Diego, uh, and uh, have a good laugh because you need some self-care uh, before we get back to you again. If you're a, a patron, it's $2 level. We will see you uh, in a few days for the bonus episode. Uh, it's a full bonus episode where Pete uh, gets a little more sweary uh, and uh, we we speak our minds so thank you so much to all of our new patrons uh do you have any last things you want to talk about before we get out i today? don't there's there, there's so much going on and we were talking about it right before we started taping about you know you've got this you've got jack which is also going through uh trump's criminal things i don't know how it is it is staggering to me taking a step back if you look at everything we talked about during the episode today that you say okay all that stuff to the extent it made your head spin. We didn't talk about his federal trial. I mean, we talked about Mar-a-Lago a little bit, but we didn't talk about Mar-a-Lago the case. We didn't talk about the January 6th insurrection case. There are things going on that if you try and get your head around all of the crime that was going on, it's mind blowing. It wasn't just, you know, the Watergate break in and the tapes. I mean, this is so much alleged crime. It's unbelievable. And I think it's important every now and then to sort of just take a step back and look at the volume of all the wrongdoing, whether or not it's proven out in court, the wrongdoing that went on and just how much of it and how many places all across the United States it was going on. Yep. It's not going to stop. It's just going to get, uh, it's just going to be more and more as time goes on. And thanks for tuning in to clean up on all 45 Jack and the daily beans and everything. So you can keep up to date on all of it. Everybody will be back in your ears next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. 
I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.